Hello Pan-Africanists. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Pan-African Review podcast. I am your host Ginty. Today's Pan-African conversation is with Veronique Mongimbai, a freelance copywriter, occasional political commentator, a feminist who loves telling African stories. Our focus today is on Pan-Africanism and feminism. Thank you so much, Veronique, for finding the time to be part of us, to come on this uh, Pan-African Review podcast. And thank you for your excellent article. And it is titled, Pan-African Feminism, a Case Against False Female Liberation. So, <laughs> let's start with, uh, with that. In the article, you're showing how Afrofeminism is a fundamental feature of uh, Pan-Africanism. And at the same time, you explain how Pan-Africanism is actually a, the cornerstone, it's the foundation of the African liberation. So, I did my one plus one, and I came up with this. There's actually no African liberation without African feminism. Do you agree with my statement or not? I mean, naturally, yes. I mean, I, I might not put it as well as you did, but <laughs> first of all, just by virtue of the fact that women compose half the population of the world and of course of our continent, without the liberation of all Africans, there's no liberation at all. And uh, second of all, because um, the exploited black male and the woman in general have so much in common, I think that without a certain unification of um, you know, our, our issues, our desires for, for, for freedom and um, for liberation and emancipation, Without it, we, we will not get any at all. The, 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 same, the same concepts that are being used to oppress the black man trickle down to the black woman and are then being used against us. Right. And something very interesting uh, that you talked about in the article, it is the fact that the African feminism you say has been unjustly been recognized as, as if it's a Western thing, as if it's borrowed, as if it's imported. What do you say about that? Unfortunately, and I, I don't want to make the mistake of ascribing it to culture. I think it's a misinterpretation of our culture um, that leads a lot of people to think that the African woman is comfortable and complacent in a state of docility and subservience and pretty much inferiority. And that the desire for equality and emancipation is sort of a whim um, of white women specifically. When humanity, a person's ability to feel human is entirely dependent on having a certain level of autonomy, on having financial independence, on having power over their lives. So naturally, every single woman would desire those things. And I completely disagree with the notion that it is you know, a white woman thing. Dr. Lonzen Rukira, who is a Pan-Africanist and he's a public po policy researcher. And he said a statement that you seem to agree with, uh, that there is no Pan-Africanism without African feminism, which I guess confirms the, you know, the way we started talking about uh, this whole issue. And so what do you really deeply agree with that? Because there were a number of reactions, especially on Twitter, some of them saying, oh yeah, you know, 
it's true that this whole movement, the Pan-African movement started, it was good, but we cannot forget that not necessarily women or feminist views were necessarily presented at the forefront uh, when everything was happening. So you, what do you think he's right in, in that sense? History is often written by men because they're at the forefront of the fight. And so they're likely to prioritize themselves as they always do. But I think that um, both feminism and Pan-Africanism really center achieving equality. So the fight for African liberation is not to gain a certain level of privilege or to mimic white privilege. It is to get us to an equal playing field with um, mostly Western forces. And that is literally the definition of feminism. Feminism also seeks equality. If we do not want equality for every single African human, and that includes African women, which feminism defends, then we do not want equality at all. We want certain people to join the oppressors at the oppressor's table. And um, that is not my interpretation of Pan-Africanism at all. I think it's unity through equality. There is um, a section where, in the article that you wrote, where you talk about weaponry formed against the African feminist. Okay, that sounds so scary. What weapons are those? Are we in a fight? What's happening? Which I think I mentioned in the article at some point, that there is a certain vulnerability that the people who have been oppressed from um, almost all angles over centuries will have. Black women have been oppressed because they are Black and because they are women. And so because of that, they are in a position of vulnerability. They're easy to influence. Um, they, haven't heard, they, they haven't had their voices be heard. They do not have a template of how to achieve you know, their fights. Um, they might be uh, rejected by their own cultures sometimes, which, as I, I mentioned earlier, have been misinterpreted as, you know, encouraging female subservience. And as such, it can be very easy for us to fall prey to the manipulations of other people. I find that um, white feminists in particular and the Western world try and feed us a narrative on how to fight our fight or how to be liberated. For example, Muslim women who are being convinced that, you know, to wear a hijab is to be oppressed, which is the exact same um, control and manipulation that feminism is supposed to fight in the first place. And because they haven't had a template and they haven't really had their own written stories to base their fights on, it can, be, it can be challenging to make the difference between false inspirations or people with Ill, Ill intentions and true allies. Right. Uh, at some point, uh, I think you also talked about Sankara. I think I'd really love you to elaborate on that and why you think the fact that he wanted to bring in women and telling them you, you have to decide what is it that you want out of your country, your lives, I think it's important to mention because it sort of inspires what we call the African feminism. I mean, I think that um, because socialism is entirely community-based and when we look at who is at the core of the community the community being you know a larger family the pillar of the family is the woman you know based on on 
biology, based on how we've been socialized, based on maternal instincts, based on, on, on many things. So I think that there is no um, seeking the benefit of the entire community without ensuring the wellness of the woman who stands at the center of it all first. And I think that is something that Sankara grasps very early and tried to share with fellow Africans. I, I entirely agree. Okay. And so in your article, you, by saying that there is a sort of false of false narrative that are being fed to African feminists. And the one you elaborated uh, on more is sexualized bodies or what you would actually call sexual freedom. Uh, I don't know if I would call it sexual freedom or, you know, sexualized bodies of women. So what did you feel like it's important to underline that fact? I've, I've felt a little scared of how vulnerable women, I feel like usually the discovery of um, your identity as a feminist is done around the ages where you're new to adulthood and you wish to express your ideas freely, use your body freely. And because our cultures are quite restrained and are quite, um, for lack of a better term, dignified, there isn't really a basis for these young women who, who desire to e explore their true identities, including their sexual identities. There isn't really a baseline for them to fall on. And so we have to use the Western template, which I believe can be very, very dangerous when um, you are at the same time dealing with trauma, or you do not really have a safe space to explore your sexuality. And I think it's often overlooked because it's a taboo subject. And I felt like telling the young women who might be reading this, I'm going to tell you what perhaps nobody else would be looking to tell you because it might sound anti-feminist to say that hypersexualization is potentially dangerous promiscuity is actually a symptom of depression and it can also be um, a result of depression. And I think with social media, we focus on the sensationalism, especially on, on places like Twitter. So hypersexuality is often at the core of the, the, the feminist fights and it gets clicks, it gets retweets and these young women who might not exactly know how to navigate adulthood yet, might think this is, you know, a shortcut to expressing their 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 freedom or their liberation as a as a feminist, and I think it's dangerous. Right, and do you know when when I read that specific paragraph, there's somewhere you were saying that considering, for example, abstinence, restraint, or just you know exercising some level of responsibility should not be further considered as oppression of womanhood, but can need be though. Say for example, if you're in a community that preaches only abstinence, restraint, which is the case of many of our society, uh, it ends up feeling like it's oppressive because obviously you're not going to explore what you want to explore, but at the same time, it's the idea of exploring that it's actually looked down upon, but also at the same time, 
at what point do we as African feminists, do we get to speak about sexual rights? Um, I think it's all about the choice here. And I think that's why I brought up earlier women who wear hijabs. I think women should be as entitled to walk down the street wearing a miniskirt as they should to be entirely covered. So um, it's for me, the angle that I was trying to approach is not so much the community because the community should not tell you how to behave. It should be your right to have a choice between all three, responsibility, restraint, or abstinence. I think um, there should be much more space for, for women to explore their sexuality, but I think it's something a little tricky to achieve because of, um, well, in our local landscape, Rwanda, the culture is one of, like I mentioned earlier, restraints. So I feel like some things aren't entirely addressed and it might be, it might be a slow transition, unfortunately. I do not believe culture is static. I think things can change and things do need to change. But like I said earlier, people are quite vulnerable amidst changes. Leaping from one thing to another can be can be fragmenting. And it is in that moment that you need to be the most cautious. Of course, explore your sexuality, but responsibility will always be important. It might not be glamorous, it might not be sensational, it might not be sexy as they say, but it will always be important. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Veronique Mongimbai. This is the first part of the conversation and part two is on its way coming, so stay tuned. Do not forget to follow the Pan-African Review on social media for more updates.